0: Invite you to take your Bibles this morning. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. We're continuing in a series, and Mike alluded to this earlier. In Mark chapter 14, we are in the midst of the final week of Jesus' life before his death. This is called Passion Week. It is from the word pathos, which means suffering. It is the week of Jesus' suffering. It is the time that is leading up, culminating in Easter Sunday when he's raised from the dead, Friday when he's placed on the cross. But in that week of Passion, we are taking one Sunday, each of the Sundays leading up to Easter, to look at the day's events. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Ben preached on uh, the triumphant entry on Sunday. Last week, I talked about Monday and Tuesday. Um, and today, I'm picking up on Wednesday, Wednesday is a unique day in the week of Passion Week because it is the only day where we read of no words that Jesus spoke, we see no actions that Jesus did. Many have called this the day of silence. Many believe, most believe, I think that this is a day where Jesus and the disciples are in recoup mode. They are resting, they are restoring themselves after the astonishingly tense experiences of Monday when he has cast, uh, overturned the tables in in the temple, and then Tuesday when he's gone back to the temple and has been met with the tremendous hostility of the various religious and secular groups that have taken him on. He's had hard teachings, and now they've come back, and it seems that they are in in a private setting, and that setting is described in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Everything we know about Wednesday is recorded in this section and in parallel accounts in the other gospels. So this is what we know of Wednesday. And it is a unique set of verses because in these verses, we don't see Jesus through seeing his teaching, through seeing his, his miracles or his works. None are recorded. We rather see Jesus through the response of other people and the eyes of others. But let's look at this passage, Mark chapter 14. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Jesus, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Let's pray together. Lord, we gather today and we come to reflect on this Wednesday so many centuries ago. Lord Jesus, the first thing I just want to say to you as I read this passage and I think of what you endured Monday and Tuesday is that we love you, we worship you. We're so grateful that you allow us to climb in and see your humanity. To you see the, the fact that you actually pulled aside and just in the need of rest and respite in the face of astonishing hostility and antagonism. And Lord, it, it reminds us that though you are God, you also became Man, that you understand our humanness and that you you worked through and endured through your own suffering and rejection. And so, Lord, we gather with you on that Wednesday. We place ourselves before you and God enable us to see our own hearts' response to, to Jesus through. This simple study this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our passage this morning focuses on different responses to Jesus by two people that knew him well. The first of those, a man named Judas. And Judas is, of course, one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot. There's another individual here, unnamed in the Gospel of Mark account, but named in parallel accounts in John and others, as Mary of Bethany the sister of Lazarus, and the sister of Martha. And both are individuals. Both Mary and Judas hung with Jesus. They knew His teaching, His works. They knew His values. Both were looked at as, by others as being deeply identified with Jesus Christ. But the fruit of their heart choices could not have been more distinct. Mark and his gospel is clearly trying to contrast them because this account that is recorded here in verses 3 through 9 in the middle of this section, where first it says the religious leaders on Wednesday were seeking, you know, they were scheming how they were going to kill Jesus. And then you jump down to the verses below that, verses 10 and 11, and it says Judas went out to, to say, I'm the guy, I'll betray him for you. And then verses 3 through 9 in the middle are among the most controversial in the Passion Week verses as to when they actually occurred. Because in John chapter 12, it seems there that John is saying this anointing of Jesus with the the expensive oil actually took place on the Saturday before the triumphant entry. Matthew and Mark seem to place it in the midst of Wednesday events. Whenever it was, I would suggest strongly that Mark and Matthew are intentionally placing it in such a way that we are confronted with the remarkable contrast between Mary of Bethany's response to Jesus Christ and Judas' response to Jesus Christ, yet both are people that knew him, that did life with him, that were identified with him. And I think this... this laying out of the passage is intended for us to see the remarkable distinction of these two individuals' response to Christ. Both of these people leave an astonishing legacy. Jesus says of Mary, what she has done will always be remembered. And it goes without saying that no one will ever forget what Jesus, what Judas did as well. Mark is trying to get us to do some personal evaluation. You know, in in urban language today, there are probably thousands of acronyms that stand for certain phrases. And one is a phrase, DTR. I don't remember where I even came across this. but, But basically, I think Mark is trying to face, to get us to face the DTR talk with Jesus. And you say, what's a DTR talk? Well, a DTR talk is something that Um, young guys in particular tend to be nervous about, Uh, it often comes when they're in a relationship and someone is interested in knowing where things are going. The DTR talk, DTR is define the relationship. And in this passage, I think that's what John is asking us, Mark is asking us to do. Define the relationship. Define your relationship with Jesus Christ. We're going to see two individuals very aware of Him, acquainted with Him, but their relationship needs to be defined. It needs to be clarified because it is very different in the way it plays out. So Jesus might be asking us, look, you've been hanging around me for a while. You know a bunch about me. Other people look at us and they might even say that, that, that we do life together. So let's take stock of where we are. Are you living more like Ju- Judas, who knew me and people associated together, me, us together? Or are you living more like Mary? Well, let's look at four areas quickly where they are contrasted in this passage. First of all, we find a, 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 where they have in common, but contrast in their response. One thing, they both have familiarity with Jesus. Judas is familiar with Jesus, but he has been inoculated by his familiarity. An inoculation, a vaccine, basically is you inoculate somebody by you're trying to get them to not get a serious disease, so you give them a very small portion of the disease. You inoculate them. It's a va- that's what a vaccine usually is. It's just giving you a part of it that your body can develop the antibodies to fight it off, so when the real disease is coming towards you, you're ready to fight it off. I think Judas' experience with Jesus has turned into an inoculation, He's got it. He knows. He knows what Jesus is about. He knows what this is. He knows he he, he can do the the Jesus talk. He's been out there doing the the Jesus ministry. I mean, he's, he's part of the group. He knows the playbook. And yet, he is inoculated to the real disease of a personal, passionate relationship to Jesus Christ. Now, the striking thing about this is how unaware the people doing life with him were of that, how similar he appeared to everybody else. When Judas went out, he was sent out with another guy, one of the other disciples, and they did ministry two by two by two by two. One of those guys did life with Judas all the time. He didn't pick it up. When they're in the upper room and Jesus says, one of you will betray me, the entire band of disciples didn't immediately go, they went, is it me? It's not me, is it? No, they weren't immediately saying, of course, we knew it. They weren't saying all the time, Jesus, why are there 12 of us? I mean, why is, why is he here? What's he doing with us? He was a part. Years ago, there was a thing called the Nuremberg War Trials, and it was a place where they arrested and tried the Nazi war criminals And some of the trials actually were extended. There were different phases of it. In 1961, there was one, even though it was many years after the war, because Adolf Eichmann, one of the leading perpetrators of the whole prison camp system, the director, the commandant of Auschwitz, was arrested in Argentina and he was brought to the trials. And this man that has done, had done such perverse, horrific sins against other humans was brought to trial, and the recording of the trial actually was made into a 60-minute piece by Mike Wallace, the reporter. And Mike Wallace led out the program. This happened a few years ago. And in the piece, he asked this question, how is it possible for a man to act as Eichmann acted, was he a monster? A madman? Or was he perhaps something even more terrifying? Was he normal? The most startling answer to Wallace's shocking question came in an interview with Yahiel Dinur, a concentration camp survivor from Auschwitz who testified against Eichmann at the Nuremberg trials. And at one striking moment of the trial, Deneur, who's testifying against Eichmann, sees Eichmann brought in to the courtroom. And at that moment, Deneur collapsed, sobbing uncontrollably. This is the aftermath. Once they had pulled him aside and were caring for him, and so, Wallace asked the questions. Now, he had not seen him in Auschwitz for over 18 years, and he saw him for the first time. So, Wallace asked the questions. What was going on? Was Dinur overcome by hatred, by fear, by horrid memories? And it was none of those things. Rather, as Deneur explained to Wallace all at once, he realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. This Eichmann was an ordinary man. And Dunur said this, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. Basically he said, Realize, this is, this is a man. It's a man like I'm a man. Yes, he did horrific things, but he was struck with the commonness of this individual. Judas fit right in. Judas did life with these guys. They didn't smell the rat. They didn't sense the, 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 the desperate deeds that this man was about to do with the ultimate betrayal of all humankind. And it is a shocking reminder of us that our hearts do have the seed of every sin, every known sin, that we too, because we are familiar with Jesus, because we know the verbiage, because we know the playbook, we know the game plan, we, we, know, we, we, we know how to talk about it, I mean, we're, we're associated with it, doesn't mean that we have the heart that is going to be manifested by the other member at this table, We might be not selling him and intentionally denying him. But are we more like Mary, whose heart was not simply, and life was not simply inoculated, she was absolutely infected by the real disease of passion for Christ. Some of the hardest hearts are those who are around the gospel and the church. They know it. They're familiar with it. They could recite it. They have a taste of it, but it only inoculates to the real disease. Mary was infected. She had apparently been with Jesus whenever he came to Jerusalem. And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that that Jerusalem was here, and then to the eastern side, there was a There was a hill called the Mount of Olives, and on the other side of the Mount of Olives at its base was a little town called Bethany, and that's where Jesus stayed whenever he came to Jerusalem, apparently, and he stayed with the siblings, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. She had done life with Jesus, but the more she had spent time with Jesus, the more her familiarity deepened her love for him, her trust in him, her desire to know him better. Both were familiar but very different in their heart responses. The second thing is their focus on Jesus. Both, Jesus. both Judas and Mary focused on Jesus. There were things that they were seeking from him and towards him. Judas was using him. Judas never is identified as doing something that, all, that many of the other disciples did. They regularly called Jesus Lord. Jesus, whenever he called Jesus by name called him rabbi, which meant teacher. Now, we look back, and, and I, I think we do. I've certainly done what I, what I think John did. John in chapter 12 is looking back and saying, you know what? This guy was pilfering. He was pilfering from the bag. He was, he was lining his pockets with our money all this time, but they didn't know it then. They looked back. But when we look back at the Gospels, we see seeds like this with Judas that... yeah. He, yeah, he acknowledged him as teacher, he never acknowledged him as Lord, though the other disciples regularly did. It's almost as if he didn't want to enthrone him on the, on the heart seat of his life in the same way that some of the other disciples wanted to. In the order of the disciples, you see that his name was never listed, it was always listed in the same place, that, that they tended to list the disciples' names in order of their intimacy with Jesus and And it's always Peter and James and John are always the first three listed, and always the backup, the bottom line, is is Judas. You never see him asking spiritual questions. As a matter of fact, the only things we really know about Judas all relate to money. We know that he was the one who carried the money bag. We know that he is here at this moment, irritated at the extravagant expenditure by Mary, we know that John, when he records this event, says, yeah, he wasn't thinking about the poor at all. He was thinking about what he, what, what he apparently regularly did, how he could get some of that money out of the purse into his own pockets. When Judas sold Jesus out, he sold him for money. And when Satan entered Jesus' heart, we're told that prompted him to betray Christ, Satan entered his heart and he went for the money. Judas never, ever seemed to be drawn to Jesus for himself, but for what Judas, what, what Jesus could do for Judas in the realm of wealth or influence or power. It was about what he could do for him. And now we look at Mary. Mary was there to worship. This amazing act of worship by Mary was reflective of a pattern of personal worship throughout her her encounters with Christ. Once when Jesus was visiting the home of the three siblings there in in Bethany, um, Martha was serving, and she got ticked off at her sister. And here's what happened. It's found, if we can bring up that passage. And Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Martha has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Mar- Mary was known and, and is habitually identified as, as a worshiper. That She loved being in the presence of Christ. She loved sitting at the feet of Christ. She loved being taught by Christ. Her response there was reflective of what had been her response continually to Christ. She was a worshiper, not a user of Christ. Kyle Eidelman, in his book, Not a Fan, uh, with the subtitle, Becoming a Fully Committed Follower of Jesus Christ, tells the story of an older missionary still serving on the foreign mission field whose wife had died and he returned to the United States for a visit. And as he returned, he had a layover in Las Vegas, Nevada. First time he'd ever been to Las Vegas. He, he had to get a hotel room. He got a hotel downtown. And he'd never been to Las Vegas. And so the middle of the night, this now single man went out under the strip. And he went out there. It's the middle of the night. And the first thing he, he noticed was it was daytime. I mean, it was so bright, there were so many lights in downtown Las Vegas that it felt like it was the day, and it was just teeming with people and all the activity of the nightlife of Las Vegas. And Kyle Adelman tells some of the things. As he walked down the strip, he heard the loud music, saw the amazing hotels. He went into one hotel lobby because they were having a giant car show of the most expensive cars available on earth. He went to, uh, he saw the games being played in the casinos, heard the coins uh, coming out, heard the the enthusiastic voices of the winners. He saw the marquee signs announcing the amazing entertainers that were in one resort after another. He tasted the amazing food that were advertised everywhere in some of the restaurants, just amazing meals. He saw stunningly beautiful women, and sensual attractions were everywhere. And finally in the early hours of the morning while it was still dark, he went back to his hotel room and he went into the hotel room in this high-rise hotel and he walked in and he didn't even turn the lights out. He just walked over to the window and he opened the curtains and he looked down into all the lights and and the glitz of the city. And then he looked up to the lights of the stars and he knelt down by the window. And as he knelt down, he said this to God. God, I thank you that tonight I haven't seen anything I want more than I want you. That was Mary. Lord, I haven't seen anything that I want more than I want you. Not what you can do for me. Not health, not prominence, not, not friends, not, not relations. I haven't found anything that I want more than I want you. This was Mary. This is what Christ is presented. Judas was the exact opposite. He wanted what Christ would provide. He wanted to use him and bring his gifts. Mary said, I want you. I want to know you. I want to hear you. I I want to talk to you. I want to worship you. Mary was a worshiper. The third contrast we see is in the arena of their faith in Jesus. Judas, his faith was centered on circumstances. Apparently at this time here in Passion Week, the rising opposition to Jesus convinced Judas that this was not going to end well. It was certainly not going to end in the way that he thought it should end. And so, I think his actions that we see in verse 10 and 11 of going and offering to betray Jesus and now scheming to do that, which will culminate in his action in the Garden of Gethsemane, can be looked at in one of two ways. I think the worst case scenario is just to say that to Judas, Jesus was no longer a meal ticket to power and wealth, so he was selling him out and trying to get some money on the the way out. Maybe the best way we can look at his behavior would be this that Judas was frustrated that Jesus was not going about the acquisition of the throne in the right way. So he just, Judas is trying to help it along a little bit, you know, raise the stakes, get this thing worked up, get the opposition going, so Jesus will have to use his power and vanquish them. Either way, either way, Judas is about Judas. Judas is about getting what he is going to get out of this thing, In either case, he is frustrated that Jesus is not doing what he feels he should do. And then we look at Mary. Mary's faith is not centered on circumstances. It is centered on Christ's character. In John chapter 11, Jesus has come to Bethany, and and he's come late. Actually, the word has come from the two sisters. They've reached out to Jesus, and they said, Our brother Lazarus is very sick, very sick. He's very serious. They send him the message and we're told in John chapter 10 and 11 that Jesus didn't hustle down there. He wasn't that far away. He just said, no, chill out, guys. We're not going. They said, well, we need to get, no, give it time. Well, they gave it time and, and he died. And Jesus shows up and the girls are confused Martha talks to him, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And then Mary's still inside, and he calls for Mary, and Mary comes out in John 11, verse 32, and says this, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. I don't know that Mary was even rebuking. I think she's just saying her pain maybe there's some rebuke in it but the response of Mary is to say I don't understand I don't know why you didn't come if you'd come I I know you could have healed him you would have healed him I'm sure when she found out later it would have been even more remarkable to her to know that Jesus had not just been delayed in getting there he deliberately procrastinated he chose to get there late Because she would have thought, Jesus, you've got to get here because you're the only hope for my brother, not knowing that Jesus' intention was to let him die, that he could rise from the dead. Mary had learned through experience that she could trust Christ to be doing things she might not understand. She could leave them with him. She could believe him to be at work in ways that she did not understand comprehend. Mary had learned that in God's seeming delays, he is acting right on time with his program. Though it must have been confusing. It was confusing to, Ju- to Judas. And he took things into his own hand. He's going to, I'm going to make the best of this. I'm going to work this because Christ isn't coming through the way I think he should. Mary had learned and is learning the lesson That what God is allowing in your life right now is exactly what you would pray for if you knew everything that God knows. Now, some of you may have reaction to that statement. I don't even, you can't begin to say that knowing what's going on in my life. Maybe, but I would say it again. What God is allowing in your life right now is exactly what you would pray for if you knew everything that God knows. She thought if he doesn't get here, my brother's going to die. He didn't get here. He chose not to get here. My brother died. It's, that's the end. The game's over. Game over. What she didn't know was he was deliberately allowing him to die, that she could raise him from the dead. Mary had learned to not put her faith ultimately in circumstantial elements, but in the character of Christ. The fourth thing we find in the contrast between the true is fruit toward Jesus the best we could give to Judas would be restrained association that ultimately culminated in betrayal Judas was always in the background no overt declarations of faith no clear testimonials to Christ just polite association with him no risk that we can see him mean, there's some risk just by being around Jesus but he was careful he was protecting his back and then we come to Mary and here's Mary this reckless allegiance. What she did, she's reclining in the room and we're told that, that, that they were in a, in, a, in a person's borrowed house in Bethany and she brings out this flask and it, it's about a pint full of this expensive oil to put perspective on it. The kind of oil that they have here, actually the, the nard that is here, the spike nard, actually was grown in the Himalayas of China or India. It's the only place. It was imported, uh, this aromatic oil, and it was extraordinarily, extravagantly expensive. We're told in the other Gospels that it actually cost, it was the, the amount that they would have paid for it, the value of it, was about one year's wages. A whole year's salary. In our day, thousands and thousands of dollars, and she just boop, Pours it on Jesus' head and then and then and then wipes his feet with it and takes her hair and I mean this extravagant expression of devotion, but come on, I mean, think of how these people are watching, and when we find out how they're watching that they're they're looking at it, and Judas particularly is speaking against it. Some of the disciples weigh in. They're saying things here to her. I mean, this is this is reckless. Now the word reckless is from the word to reckon. And to reckon means to consider the cost. Being reckless is disregarding the cost. She's saying, I'm not going to have my my actions be dictated by the potential cost that I'm going to face. Now, of course, she faced the cost of the disciples questioning her. Judas openly rebuking her. Jesus has to say, let her alone. But I don't think those were the voices that would have been the hardest for Mary to avoid. There was somebody else at that table whose voice, I think, had the most influence on Mary. John tells us who was at the table. A dinner was gathered in Jesus' honor. It's the same setting. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and washed his feet with her hair. I think that the voice of the apostles would have had influence, but I don't think that's the voice that was the hardest one for her to close out. I'm guessing it was Martha. Big sister Martha, the worker, the task. Here's Mary, always impractical, always spontaneous, mystical, you know, when there's work to be done, where's she? You know the hardest people in your life to shut the voices out about? They're the people that know you the best and do life with you the most. It's often your sister, your brother. It's family. It's, it's, it's people that have voices. It's hard to shut Martha's voice out. It's hard. To, oh, man. But she says, I, I have I'm recklessly allegiance to Christ. I'm disregarding the cost. I'm disregarding how it's going to be felt. And and again, when you do life with family members, they can be the ones that can, they, they know how to mock you the most. They know how to deride the best. They know your failures. They know your weaknesses. They were back when you did the stupidest things you've ever done. Nobody else knows. They know. But Mary only saw Christ. She didn't see Judas. She didn't see the apostles. She didn't see Lazarus. She didn't even see Martha. She only had eyes for Christ. It is a reckless disregarding the cost allegiance that she shows. In 1968, Millard Fuller was 29 years old, and he had just made his first million. It was a lot of money in 1968. That's a lot of money today, but it was a real lot of money in 1968. He was a professing Christian, married um, to his wife, Linda, and they had it all. And he was shocked to come home one afternoon to find a note from Linda telling him she had left him. And she just was bagging the whole marriage. She took off. He loved her, and he pursued her. And eventually, he caught up with her in New York City and found the hotel she was staying at on a Saturday afternoon. He showed up at her hotel room and they spent the entire night talking through what was going on. Where were they? And she told him she was totally uh, empty with her life. That she, there, there was no meaning in her life. That, that their marriage, just, it, it was centered around stuff and gathering and, and being successful. And, and, and it just she was so unhappy and empty and it was, a, it was like a mirror to Millard's own soul, he said, as he looked into his own life and he realized how he had just poured his life into something that didn't matter. And so they came to this startling agreement. They agreed that they would take every dime they had and they would give it away. And that they would totally cast themselves on Christ and see what he led them to do. And the next day, they were still in New York City. They looked up to find an evangelical church in New York City. And they went to church. And they're sitting there in church. And they go up to the pastor afterwards. They introduce themselves. And they told him what they had decided to do. Now, the pastor, and I'm sure he, he doesn't know them. So, we, we're not throwing him under the bus when we say this. And we understand his counsel. But he basically told them that they didn't need to be quite that radical. That they, that basically he said that such a radical decision was not really necessary to follow Christ. And Millard said this. He told us that it was not necessary to give up everything. He just didn't understand that we weren't giving up money and the things that money could buy, we were giving up, period basically, we were saying yes to Christ. We don't know where this is going. But for us, right now, the Spirit is saying, I want a reckless allegiance. I want you to do something that that doesn't make sense. That people look and say, that's insane. And you'll bear the cost of people not understanding. Even the first pastor you walk into says, guys, you're, this is fanatical. I mean, this is, you need Relax, you haven't slept all night. You know, all the things you'd probably say or I'd probably say. But they were convinced. And so they went to a a ministry down south, spent a couple of years there, just became donated, basically had enough by their work to live on. And then they began to get a vision of of using some of the tools they learned there and home building, and they became missionaries with a mission board, and they went to Zaire. They spent a number of years in Zaire, and and God used them to to, uh, use the tools of of building houses and stuff to to help people there, and to help them get started, and do low-income housing, to help people get on their feet, and not just giving handouts, but, but teaching the people how to do the building with them, and And eventually, Millard, Fuller, and Linda came back to the United States because they sensed a new calling that God had for them, and they started a ministry. You may have heard of it. It's called Habitat for Humanity. God used a man and a woman who would have been extraordinarily wealthy in the eyes of the world and were on a fast track to astonishing wealth that they became recklessly aligned with Jesus Christ. I think this is Mary. I think jo- that Judas is the perfect example of somebody that's a- hanging around, knows the verbiage, maybe has some level of experience. I mean, he's taken some hits for following Jesus. I mean, it's not all dark. But he hasn't really bought in He's not reckless with his desire. He's not saying, I'm disregarding the cost. Nothing else matters. I want to know Christ. I want to live with Christ. I want to worship Christ. I want to trust Christ even when I don't understand what he's doing. And I don't want my faith to be based on circumstances being the way I think they should be. When we come into the silence of Passion Week's Wednesday, we're reminded of how different our hearts' response to Jesus can be. This series is designed to have us know Him, not in the cold familiarity of Judas, but in the impassioned devotion of Mary, in the reckless allegiance to Him that made her ignore the disapproval of others. And in the sincere devotion to him and his word that deepened her love and trust of him. I've had the chance in the last few days to read the daily readings that are are in the Common Life booklet for this coming week. They're written by Faith Parker. And I know there's not many, there's not books left, but you can do it online. I, I really want to encourage you to read them. They're powerful. They are. Even, even the prayers are beautiful. They take us into the experience of this. Our goal in these weeks pointing towards Easter is that it won't just be business of as usual in our lives, but that we will become wholehearted and we will become fully aligned with the purposes of Christ for our lives that we'll be willing to say, I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. I'll give up anything. I'll embrace anything but I don't want to be like a low-level Judas. I know the game. I'm a part of the gang. I know the playbook. I know the verbiage. But we're not really all in. Mary was all in. I think this whole passage, I think the whole description of Wednesday is to give us this invitation. Would you not right now choose to be all in with Christ? It may mean you'll give up all your money. Probably not. But it may mean you'll give up something. It may mean you'll embrace something that you wouldn't have thought you needed to take on before. But Mary reminds us that the whole Christian journey is about seeing Jesus, is about knowing Jesus, is about loving Jesus. It's about being Aligned with Jesus and His purpose for our lives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, again I thank You for Wednesday. Somehow the thought of You needing rest, quiet, is powerful for me. It just reminds me again that that this was no nothing thing you did in Passion Week. It was intentional choices to suffer, intentional choices to be beyond your own resources and strength. It culminates in the cross, but it seems to be going on in all these days. Lord, may your devotion to us elicit devotion from us to you. May we be Mary's. May you take our hearts the degree to which you seem to have claimed hers. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord.